You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Well, welcome back to our study here on Revelation. I'm Chip Bennett and with Dr. Warren Gage, and we're continuing to look at Revelation and what we're going to talk about now, um, and it'll help us as we interpret. And again, please understand the enterprise here is to try to give everybody sort of an overarching view, a theme that, that they can sort of see how to interpret this book, which we readily concede has always sort of been an issue. I think understanding what is being written, we, we talk about genre here, um, really helps to focus in on how to read this book. Um, last time we talked about the, the the center of the book and we sort of anchored that into some Hellenistic tradition and how the way that they would write books. Um, but that world also had a, um, a very vivid imaginatory world um, that people would gather in these uh, wonderful, you know, amphitheaters and they would see plays and primarily would see things like, you know, tragedy and comedy. And I think most people sort of know the two masks, you know. Mm -hmm. We understand certain things about our society and our world. There's certain things that I could say that people would immediately know what they mean. They had a world in which they also knew certain things and as soon as they saw something, they knew where it was going. They knew how it was going to sort of constitute along the way. Not knowing some of those things can keep us maybe from understanding some of the the beauty of what's going on in the Book of Revelation. Let's let's talk a little bit about about genre. Pay attention here because this is this is really vitally important to understanding how to read Revelation and how to understand basically any book that you are going to read or any 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 movie you're going to see or whatever. I mean, I, I I don't realize I don't think most people realize that certain movies, whether it be like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, that they have a certain, there's a, there's a trajectory going a, on. Arc, Absolutely. story arc. And understanding that story arc, understanding that genre, um, I think will help us. So let's, let's get into that. Uh, I think that one of the most important books for me that helps me with Revelation is Aristotle's Poetics. Hmm. But I think when I say that, a lot of people get all upset. <laughs> you know, you're appealing to a pagan. Yeah. A philosopher to uh, to understand these things. Actually, Jesus, I think, is alluding to something of that too, and I'll I'll explain that. Uh, but Paul certainly quotes pagan poets. And, sure, uh, I think that's I think that's pretty apparent. And so there, that doesn't mean that they can't yeah. speak some truth. You can't live in a culture and be unscathed in no. the culture. You can't have no. you can't and, have large voices that would have people would have known Plato and Paul's world. You know, and it's not. It's not doing some sort of magic or trickery when you get to the book of Hebrews and it talks about the shadow and the realities and, and things like that. That's people platonic. people totally yeah. know. And that doesn't mean that we don't think the Bible somehow isn't the word of God. It just means that we believe that God superintended through culture, through people, through writers to convey messages and understanding that world that they lived in is vital. I often say, and I don't know if it's the best thing to say, but I often say that the Bible was not written to you and me. It was written for you and me. And what I mean by that is, is yeah, I mean, the Bible was written to, for us, but but it wasn't written immediately to us. It was written to a group of people at a specific time, at a specific place. Understanding that helps us to understand how the Bible then is written for me. And it, it, I can understand where it's coming from. So it doesn't denigrate the Word of God, but it definitely helps us to understand it. So I think when you're talking about like Aristotle and poetics, and, and I know where you're going to go, um, that doesn't mean that we're using Aristotle to interpret the Bible. It means that we're trying to 
talk about things that will help us to understand what they were thinking of at the time that they wrote. Mm -hmm. I know some of the criticism that I've heard, you know, these are not inspired writers, but I'm not looking at them for inspiration. <laughs> I'm looking at them because they describe something that is anthropologically true universally. Mm -hmm. Aristotle didn't invent the laws of logic. <laughs> they are woven into the universe by the logos, we would sure, say, sure. but he described them and that's useful. And in his poetics, he describes there are only four gestures of the soul. There are only four stories, in other words. Mm -hmm. And the two most fundamental, of course, are tragedy and comedy. Mm -hmm. and, so, and those are pretty well understood. And these categories, it's, you know, we think of comedy, we think of slapstick or mm -hmm. something like that. But no, it's, it's a very, very fundamental aspect of human anthropology you find all over the world. Sure. And so Jesus, in fact, talks about when he contrasts his ministry with John the Baptist, he says that Israel had rejected both, although they were very different. Mm -hmm. Because John came in a very tragic mode because he's emphasizing the need for repentance. Mm -hmm. He's a prophet of repentance. He's calling them to repentance, and he's a baptism of repentance. But Jesus came, we're told, didn't baptize. The reason for that is he represented the glory that would follow the repentance. Mm -hmm. that, that was a different aspect of his ministry. Jesus himself says, Israel rejected John, they rejected him, even though they were very different. But he uses this, this metaphor borrowed from dramatic, the dramatic arts. He said, we played the pipes for you and you didn't dance. And then we sang a dirge for you and you didn't mourn. Mm -hmm. In other words, the dancing is the comedic and the mourning is the tragic. Yeah. So he's, he's very much aware of that. Everybody in that, in that world mm -hmm. understood this. And Goethe is the one who said that if you want to understand the poet, you have to go to the poet's land. You have to mm. go back into that particular time and understand how they viewed things, and then that becomes clear sure. to you. So the two fundamental stories are tragedy and comedy. Mm -hmm. They've got different trajectories. Tragedy generally begins high. You can think of Adam who's given dominion over all yep. things in the garden, and then he falls. We, we use that metaphor when, when the sin comes. Mm -hmm. And Aristotle said it's usually within one circuit of the sun, which is exactly what we have in Genesis. Sure. He's describing the fall of man. Yeah. But comedy, on the other hand, begins low and ends high. That's right. And tragedy typically ends in death, mm -hmm. as the story of Adam sure. and sin. He's dust and he's going back to That's dust. Right. Comedy ends high, but it ends in the opposite of death, which is not life, it's a wedding. Almost all comedies, and we have- Aristophanes. Aristophanes is the primary example. Sure. But, but, and that's, so, and that's, that's important to note, although we don't have all, but, but what we do have when they ended, that they had a very specific ending, which was mm -hmm. a wedding. And that's mm -hmm. not, I mean, it, like if we had 11 and one of them was a wedding and 10 of them were other stuff, that's not probative. But when you have 11 of them and they're all ending in weddings and they're known as comedies, th th that is something that you got to take note of. That, mm -hmm. that comedies, even though they're the opposite of tragedy and they're going from low to high, the comedies in the, before the time of Jesus and around the time of Jesus were ending in weddings. And, and I think that's, that's, that's huge. That's though. right. It's huge. It is. And we will see that. Yes. Because revelation will end in the marriage of the Lamb. That's exactly right. But before we go in that direction, in terms of how they would have understood the thrust of Revelation yep. and the nature of the material, Aristotle said there are four stories. Mm -hmm. Two primary are tragedy and comedy. Well, if you study the poet, poetics of the Hebrew uh, mind, if you take, think the psalm, Psalms, for example, the two primary psalm types, lament, which has a tragic 
exactly. voice. And Thanksgiving, when you're delivered from the lamentable state, That's right. and you're delivered from that, then that enters into a comedy. And so you see that same kind of a thing at the beginning of the, the Psalms, the whoever put the collection together, he really populates the early part of the Psalms with lament. Mm -hmm. But as you're coming toward the end, right. when you move to the Hallel uh, Psalms and the doxologies, uh, there's a trajectory. You have more of the Thanksgiving Psalms. Mm -hmm. And so there is a trajectory moving from tragedy to comedy. Mm -hmm. And that's the essence of the gospel message itself, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Jesus said all of the Old Testament was speaking of the sufferings of Christ. That's right. And the glory that would follow, exactly right. the sufferings would lead to his death right. and burial, and the glory sure. would be his resurrection well, and ascension. If you don't have the tragedy of the fall, you don't understand how bad the problem is. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you get rid of tragedy and you only talk about comedy, everything's just great, everything's whatever. If you don't have comedy and you only have tragedy, then, then you're left with no hope. You got, you got to have both, but both sides frame. But you have to have that sequence. That's exactly right. You know, that, yes. that makes sense of all your suffering. Correct. Jesus said... Was it not necessary? See, in the Old Testament, some of the rabbis thought there were two messiahs. The Messiah comes suffering, and that's very clear, you know, yes. Isaiah 53, 53 or Psalm 22, but then you've got passages where the Messiah comes and everything is put back in order, the chaos right. is put down, yeah. and he's reigning and ruling, and it's glorious, it's wonderful. The desert sure. is, is you know, blossoming sure. like the rose. Well, not only that, thought two messiahs, but Israel also decided they were the suffering part, and the Messiah was the one who was going to come put it back some, together. Some yeah, did that. Yeah, that's right. It shows how mm -hmm. it, there's this there's this real question of how does this work and that work. Some, some that's see, the you question know. of life. And Peter right. says the prophets struggled. They mm -hmm. didn't understand right. that. You know how how does suffering relate to glory here? Mm -hmm. And Jesus gives the key to understanding the whole of the Bible, including Revelation, at the end of Luke when he's talking to the Emmaus disciples, and he says. Was it not necessary, that is ordained, that the Christ would suffer and then enter into his glory? That's the, that's the key. The sequence is important. After suffering, God is faithful always to give us glory. Mm -hmm. And so that helps you to go through suffering. Mm -hmm. If you know that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory sure. that would follow. Sure. If we suffer with sure. him, we will reign sure. with him. That becomes axiomatic for the apostles after after exactly Jesus right. announces that in Luke 24. But that characteristic is, you know, before Aristotle, like I said, because he's observing something mm -hmm. that's part of the human anthropology, sure. the psychology makeup. He said it's the mundus imaginalis, it's the world of the imagination that is constituted of these four stories, four gestures. And tragedy and comedy describe the suffering aspect of becoming like Christ and the glory aspect mm -hmm. that follows it. God is ordained not only uh, suffering for us, but the glory that would follow. Jesus said, when the when he's about to be taken away from the disciples, he said, your sorrow is going to come on you like a woman in labor. But then when the glory comes and the child is born into the earth, you forget all the suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's the way, sure. that's really, the, that becomes sure. the message of the gospel. Sure. Suffering comes first, then glory. Yeah. And that becomes axiomatic. And of course, epic just combines the two. Epic is one of the yeah, four stories, absolutely. and that combines the two. And you have lyric. Aristotle called it dithyrambic, but it's the same thing. It's lyric. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the longing for something. I want to read something that okay. I wrote. Because in the first century, they would have immediately recognized Revelation not as tragic, which is how most people take it today. <laughs> it's all fear-based. judgments yeah. and the, you know, the, all the beasts that arise and the you know, right. anti-cry, all this kind of stuff that goes. Only exasperated by the fact 
that they try to read the current headlines into the book of Revelation. You, your, your, your context is not the scripture. See, we're, we've talked about Genesis, we're talking about the Old Testament, we're sure. talking about John, right. the New Testament. The context becomes the newspaper, and right. you know, that, 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 that will immediately show itself, I think, yes. usually to be false. But I, I want to look at it in terms of the context. In the first century, they would have recognized immediately that Revelation is comedy mm -hmm. because it ends in the wedding. It ends in the... But the, it starts low, too. It's a bunch of churches that are looking like they're not even going to make it. Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. it, I mean, that's the way it starts. And There's no question. Significant. You know, it is significant. We'll, we'll talk about that. But the, it's the hieros gamos, the sacred mm -hmm. wedding. That's the calling that we have. Mm -hmm because we are espoused through our covenant of salvation with that's none right. other than God himself. So that, I mean, that's, yeah. talk about hope. I was reflecting on this and I wrote these, and I think this, I think this will be helpful. It's a risen Lord, I was thinking about his discussion with the amazed disciples, invites us, uh, as he did them, to enter into an entirely new world beyond the natural horizons of the universal experience of the grave. We all see the sequence of life. You're born, you grow to maturity, you begin to decline and you die. And that ineluctable sequence is all tragic. When Jesus comes, the sequence is changed. You're born, you grow to flourishing, decline and die, but then you're born again, you're resurrected. That changes time and space. That changes everything, every dimension of life. The Lord invites us to enter an entirely new world beyond the natural horizons of the universal experience of the grave. His own resurrection means nothing less than the cosmic veil has been torn asunder opening up a supernatural realm, a truth from a world beyond the reach of death. Mm. That is why the Emmaus disciples missed it. It is entered into by faith that is more real than any than mere experience. Mm. It is a realm of reality attested to by all the scriptures, but it's accessible only by faith. The Emmaus disciples knew the Bible. That's right. Like so many of us, and they're sad, it's the greatest day in the history of redemption. Right. It's the afternoon of the resurrection. But we had hoped is what they said. They've lost their hope right. because they've seen the suffering. Right. And they don't recognize that God is going to follow that mm -hmm. with glory. Resurrection requires a new wisdom that the amazed disciples learn from the risen Savior. It's an eraser that obliterates all the familiar horizons of space. It dissolves the tether of time that chains the earth to its orbit around the sun. We're required to reimagine the world as we once thought we thought we knew it. We must leave the prison house of experience of the ineluctable cycle of life to death in this world, of the vanity of human experience bounded by the womb and the tomb. It is our understanding of death that must die. Our imagination must be informed by faith sufficient to see beyond the limits of the womb to the tomb, reimagined by faith how the tomb itself can become the womb of new life. Hmm. That's Romans 8, 18 to 22. The Bible knew this reality all along as Jesus taught Cleopas and his friend. The evidence of this new world is the reality of hope. See, that sequence, suffering is followed by glory, gives you hope going through the suffering That's right. that you, by which you can persevere. Only if you are a child of God. Mm -hmm. I right. mean, because you don't have that same promise because it doesn't say that God's working all things out together for good for everybody. It's for it's those, for who, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And that's, that's key because uh, people who are not a believer, and, and they could be listening to this, and, and you know we're not being negative towards anybody, but the promises that glory will follow suffering is only made to the people of God. And, mm -hmm. and, that's, and, and, and thus who know, who know Jesus and are known by Jesus, there, there's a sense of that inner witness that even, even if we were raised in a country as successful as America is, and we've had very little suffering and whatever else, there's something inside every believer, I believe with all of my heart, that when you hear that suffering and glory is part of Scripture, 
and, and, and you see it in Scripture because it is, and, you, and you're told that on the other side of suffering is glory, there's something that bears witness in your heart there to you that you know that that's true. And that's what gets, like you just said, that's what gets you through the suffering. And when, that's what the Emmaus disciples were feeling. They spoke about that. Mm -hmm. Didn't our hearts burn that's within exactly us? exactly right. There was a, there was, yeah. That to me is the true epistemology. That's how you know truth. It's not just by reason that we know truth. Yeah. It's by poetry, the imagination of understanding that we can also come to know truth. It's intuitive, yeah. Yeah. but it also leads us to truth. It's the signs yeah. as well as the propositions. So the Bible is filled with hope, a thought that would be meaningless in a world where death was the final reality. Hmm. It is a hope that informs the many biblical metaphors of salvation, all of which describe the upward movement of redemption as, the, as they express the rising transition from suffering to glory in a manner that creates a literary image of the mm. resurrection itself. The sequence is the key. Suffering followed by glory establishes a trajectory that enables us to move upwards from death to life. That's mm. that comic yeah. trajectory. The sequence of suffering followed by glory, Jesus says, was the key to understanding the message of the Hebrew Bible. According to Peter, this insight of the Savior also undergirds the gospel exhortation of the apostles who wrote to a suffering people, encouraging them to hope in the same promise of glory to follow as they persevered through the present tribulation. That's 1 Peter 1, 4, 5. That's all through 1 Peter. In the Roman world, which was the target audience of the New Testament apostles, classical dramatic theory was centered on tragedy and comedy, the two familiar masks of the theater. The smiling face and the frowning face represented the two alternative visions of life's fortunes, mm -hmm. suffering and glory. Tragedies ended darkly in death. Comedies ended in a wedding, the promise of new life. Kamos is the Greek word and that was a wedding processional. Uh, comedy is characterized by hope in contrast to the crushing despair of tragedy, which ends with fear and pity. The narrative trajectory of the Greek Bible then, written for a Hellenistic world, is un uniformly comedic. It culminates not in death, but in new life. That's why it's uniquely New Testament. The tragic suffering of the cross is a comic turn that leads to the glory of Jesus' triumph over death itself. The New Testament completes the comic trajectory of the Old Testament, foreseeing the culmination of redemptive history in the vision of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Hmm. So if you don't have the New Testament, the Old Testament is tragedy. Think about songs. You know, I mean, we've been to Israel together multiple times. If you listen to, you know, when the when the mosques start playing, it, it's very minor keys, it's sad. Even, even when you go to some of the Hebrew um, songs that the Jewish people sing, there's a minor key to it, there's a whatever. But in the Christian world, when, when we turn to Christian songs, they're, they're done in so many major keys. Not that there's not some minor keys, but a major key. But you need you need both. You, you, if you don't have the major key, all you have is the sadness. But you can't understand the major key in its full implications if you don't have the minor keys that have come before. Minor key is the expression of a heart that feels that he's failed God and mm -hmm. God is disappointed in him. Mm -hmm. The major key comes when you realize that you're a child of God and he loves you anyway. That's right. Not understanding that makes Revelation a book of fear. If you don't understand the genre of Revelation, you don't understand that this book is really a book of hope. That's why this is important, what we're doing here. Because I, I know probably somebody sitting there going, oh, tragedy, comedy, I thought I was going to read the book of Revelation. But this is this is the background. Like If, if you don't get this, it's really tough to understand what John is doing in his enterprise. Agreed, and we'll see that. But I want to show that that's not just the arc of the story of Revelation, but it fits within the broader framework sure. of all of the Scripture. Of the, of, the, of the Gospel. So a simple survey of the Scripture demonstrates that this is so. 
Like I'm going to take Moses, for example. Look at Moses. Is Moses tragedy? Moses sounds the silver trumpets of Jubilee to a generation of freed slaves, announcing from the mountains of Moab, go proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. To a generation of captives who were to lose everything, Isaiah's evangelical herald cried out, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings tidings of good things, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The Savior himself, standing on the mountain in Galilee after his triumph over death, commands his apostles to proclaim the gospel to all the world, telling them to make disciples of all the nations, promising that the Lord himself will be with you to the end of the age. And Moses and all the prophets speak the same voice, singing together the major chords of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, causing the cheerful bells of gospel hope to resound in every corner of all the earth. Now you understand this when you understand what the New Testament is doing. The Hebrew Bible gives us a rich abundance of golden metaphors of the gospel. In the beginning, Moses tells us in Genesis, we learn that darkness will be followed by light. The way we, the weary way we conceive of time, darkness is here, but light is coming. Moses shows us that the dead wombs can yet bring forth living children. He tells us in Exodus that our bondage will become liberty as our captivity is broken and our chains fall away. He has us taste the bitterness of Egypt that we might know the sweetness of Canaan's milk and honey. In Leviticus, he encourages us to return to the Lord of our salvation, whose altars show us how a divine alchemy can transform the iron law of justice into the golden scepter of mercy. In Numbers, he tells us of God's power and providence by which our curse is made into a new blessing, and how our hunger and thirst are satisfied by good things. In Deuteronomy, he assures us that we are upheld by the everlasting arms, that we will be delivered by the shield of God's help and by the sword of his majesty. And every one of the prophets in Israel has the pattern of comfort and consolation that follows judgment. Mm. First it's judgment, but then there's hope, there's prophetic yeah. hope. God is coming and he's going to set everything right. And so the, all of Israel's prophets promise that judgment will be followed by comfort and consolation. They tell us our infirmities will be made whole. All our sicknesses mm -hmm. are going to be healed. That's right. But that's, that presupposes a sequence of time and it's a comic trajectory. Right. Our poverty will become abundant riches. The ancient messengers of mercy encourage us to know that the outcasts will at last be welcomed home. The downcast will be lifted up. They assure us that the desecrated temple will be rebuilt, that the fallen tabernacle of David will, will even yet be lifted up. They speak to us of springs of water that will break forth in dry regions, of barren deserts that will blossom with beauty, of dry ground that will bring forth a great branch from the root of David's dynastic tree, offering shade and fruitful boughs to the pilgrim seeking the Lord. Trees of righteousness will clap their hands, to welcome the strangers who will come to Zion from all the earth, seeking rest under her branches. Hmm. The Hebrew imagination is infused with the prophetic hope of salvation from death. This becomes the bridge to the apostles' proclamation of New Testament salvation accomplished and applied. The Lord Jesus, by his suffering, opens up a fountain of mercy, inviting all who will come to draw joyfully from the flowing wells of salvation. Jesus taught that he is the door and what a door he is. He holds the very keys of the prison house of death in Hades. Hmm. He is the first fruits of the new harvest of all the earth to partake of the fruit of the tree is to find the very tree of life. To eat of his Eucharistic tree in faith is to conquer death itself and to gain new and everlasting life. And this hope, resurrection hope, is the gospel hope. It is the hope that will never be disappointed. 
And these particular metaphors of salvation are fantastic. What are illustrations? We all talk about what does it mean to be saved? Sure. And, and, and that's almost Christianese. Mm -hmm. You know, are you saved? Have you been saved? What does that mean? The Bible speaks to that, but it uses many voices to do it. Mm -hmm. It uses metaphor. All theology is metaphor because we're trying to describe ineffable truths in concrete terms. Metaphors of the good news in the Bible. Darkness will be scattered by light. Wrath will be propitiated by mercy. The barren will be made fruitful. The curse will be changed to blessing. Poverty will become riches. Bondage will become liberty. The bitter will be made sweet. Infirmities will become healing. The exile will return home. Think about that, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. We're on our way home. Prophetic judgment will become prophetic comfort. The temple torn down will be rebuilt. Barren deserts will break forth with streams of water. The lost will be found. The old will become new. Death will be swallowed up by life. Weakness will become strength. The world will hear the mighty acts of God. Hmm. All these are images of salvation. Yeah. So the voice of scripture, all of it is comedic in that grand sense. And the culmination, the reason that Revelation, I think, was separated from John and placed at the end of the canon is because it's clearly, it's closing out Genesis. The ideas that are developed mm -hmm. and introduced mm -hmm. in Genesis are, are completed then, but it's in a high and holy way. And the death that Adam brought, Christ is bringing the wedding. Mm -hmm. And so that is framing all of scripture. Mm -hmm. And they're very much aware of that. So in the first century, when they picked up this scroll of Revelation with all of its beasts from the sea, beasts from the land, <laughs> when it ends with the wedding, the kamas, yep. the processional, when they read that, they would recognize this is this is gospel. This is the hope mm -hmm. that's offered. You know, mm -hmm. if we persevere through all of this suffering, which is ordained for us by a good and loving God, right. in order for us to appreciate the suffering that was necessary for our salvation, if we persevere through all of that, the hope that we're going to have is nothing but a heavenly hope. Right. We are espoused to the royal son of David mm -hmm. and the divine mm -hmm. son of God himself. First Peter 4 he makes this statement, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. There just should be this sense and understanding that we move from one dimension to the other. And when the beauty of it is, is that ultimately that arc ends in eternity, but the, the Lord has also given us his spirit now, and we do get the ebbs and flows of suffering and glory, even in this world. It's not just all tragic here, and we're waiting for the by and by out there. There's the sense in which we, we experience some of that heavenly now. Th that's the beauty is, is we're not left, I mean, because there is an interim between here and when the Lord returns, but it's not all suffering. It, there's the ebb and flow of suffering and glory, but the ultimate movement from suffering to glory will be when the Lord returns. And that's when everything will be put to right. That, that's, that's where like I think a lot of um, modern day um, evangelical Christianity doesn't understand the uh, the beauty of both. I think we've given up the suffering part in a lot of American Christianity, and all we talk about is the glory. That means God wants you wealthy and healthy and all of these things now. there There is an element that God can heal now, and he can bless now, and he can prosper now, and he does that from time to time in our lives. But the ultimate culmination of that is in eternity. I think that that is so important, not just for the reading of Revelation, because we, we want to read Revelation, right? But reading, but even the book of Revelation is saying the same thing. The difficulties they're going through 
is pointing them to something that's greater. Um, but that doesn't mean that every person that's ever read Revelation is in the midst of having to give testimony for their life and getting ready to be slaughtered. You know, the, but, but the point being is that good Christian theology embraces the tragic side and the comedic side, realizing that the ultimate arc and aim is comedy, but understanding that in this world, the tragedy and the comedic going together are a part of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So when difficulty comes, we shouldn't go, where did God go? How come God's allowed? Mm -hmm. we, we should be like Peter. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you, but know this, that that because he says, if you partake in his sufferings, you will partake in his glory. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that to me, one of the great signs of being a follower of Jesus is to know that there's going to be difficulty in your life that will help you to do some introspection into how can I embrace this? Like James says, when trials come, you know, count it joy. How can you do that? Well, because what you're saying is I'm allowing God to conform me to the image of his son, which I know what on the other end of that is, is glory. I mean, it's why mm -hmm. he said he, he endured the cross because of the glory that was set before him. Mm -hmm. You know, and that glory mm -hmm. was, was the people that he was dying to for. To be with us. Yeah. yeah. It's much more than just reading Revelation. It, it, this is just Christian theology 101. You gotta understand both of these. You know, and I think of, you know, the, the moms that have lost kids, people that have been persecuted over in Afghanistan, uh, people that have, you know, the Coptic church that's gone through, you know, so many things over the years. What got those people through and what gets us through is, is to believe that this world is not the final say. If, if it was the mm -hmm. final say, there's nothing but tragedy. Mm -hmm. But this world's not the final say. There's a, there's a whole other world coming. And that's what in Hebrews 11 it talks about faith. It says that Abraham was looking for another city. And honestly, the book of Revelation is calling us away from absolutely that this that this this world is not all that there is. There's a, there's another city that's coming. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I think when you get that message this book totally changes. I mean, we'll, I think we'll be able to show that many, many, in many different ways, but I think that's huge. And that, that's Absolutely. why genre yeah. is important. You were talking about how do we relate now to eternity? And I think, I think one of the ways we do it when we get sick, hmm. sometimes it's seriously sick. We've just been through a pandemic yeah. and all this. And so we think if I get sick, I'm gonna trust that God is going to heal me. But I also know that every time I'm healed, I'm still under the sentence of death. Absolutely. Right? The fact that there is healing mm -hmm. intimates to, me, to my heart Correct. that there could possibly be a final healing from death That's right. itself. That's right. And so, you know, you're projecting into something, but I find this all over. When Je Jesus first announces it, I don't find it so much in the Gospels, but when he tells the Emmaus disciples, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things first and then to enter into his glory? And so Paul will say, if we suffer with him, we, we, we will be glorified mm. together with him. Here's Corinthians, for as abound the sufferings of Christ in us, so also through Christ abounds our comfort. Mm. Our hope for you is settled, that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also of the consolation. Mm. Uh, Philippians, to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to know the fellowship of his yeah. sufferings. You know, that's so contrary to America. Mm. I, I remember Mother Teresa. Uh, when Christians from America would go to visit Calcutta, this year in Calcutta, and she would show them the, the poverty. I mean, it was just, they, they, they immediately said, we're going home, we're going to enlist people, we're going to get churches involved, we're going to send all kinds of mm -hmm. things to alleviate and all of that. 
And she laughed at them. She said, you don't understand. The poverty of this city would swallow the wealth of the world. I'm not here to alleviate their suffering. That's shocking to an American. Mm -hmm. I'm here to walk with them in the journey to something better. Mm -hmm. I rejoice, Paul says, in my suffering for you Mm -hmm. to make known the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mm -hmm. We suffer and we shall also reign with him. But if we see Jesus, Hebrews says, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, Mm -hmm. Peter, the prophet, sought to know the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. But rejoice inasmuch as you share Christ's sufferings that you might also rejoice and be glad when Mm -hmm. his glory is revealed. It's just everywhere. And then in Revelation, do not fear when you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So we'll see that that genre really is an important category to helping us to understand not just Revelation, but that it fits the whole sure. theme of all of Scripture. It fit, and it fits most of the patriarchal stories that we have in the Old Testament, is there's mm-hmm. suffering and then there's glory. You know, That's think Joseph about, in particular. You yeah. know, um, but you see it, you see it in, in, in so many other situations where somebody goes down and then they're, they're brought up. You think of like mm-hmm. Daniel in the lion's den here. He's put in. I mean, Delivered you know, from death. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so. uh, you know I, I just think of so many instances where just God starts off, I mean, you know, Samson's a great example. I mean, here's a guy that God said, I'm going to do, which it shows if God says he's going to do something in your life, he's going to get it done, even if you're blind and between two pillars. <laughs> okay, but but the reality is, is that Samson's life takes a decline, but it takes God at the end to, to, to restore. But the bottom line is, is because Samson is a child of faith, because we're told that in Hebrews 11, you can see that even his stupidities and whatever else Still, God did what God was going to do, and that trajectory it usually is that sweep of tragedy. So, but I, th- I think that understanding not only undergirds this book, which makes it a book of hope, um, but I, I think it's it's vital that American Christians hear this message because I think this is this is a missing part. We you, know, you, talk, you, you quoted Philippians three ten, the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, I think we we really want to know the power of his resurrection. Mm-hmm. But what we don't want to know is the fellowship of sufferings. Yeah. But you can't fully understand the power of his resurrection if you haven't endured the fellowship of his suffering. You've got to understand repentance to understand glory. And the glory is so it, it goes it goes back to the, you know, the when Jesus is eating with uh, Simon the Pharisee and the lady comes in and she, he says to her, he says, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. Now that doesn't mean yeah. that she had more to be forgiven than anybody else. We all are in desperate need, but she understood the depth of her need for forgiveness. And because of that, she loved. And I think that that's important. If we don't understand, like in Luke 18, where the guy just beats his breast and says, Lord be merciful and he's sinner. If we don't understand how bad it was, we don't understand how great what Jesus has secured for us on the cross and resurrection is actually all what it's all about. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.